some of you asked if I got contacts. The answer is no. I can't imagine putting a finger in my eye every morning. Uh, I did have an accident. I was riding bicycle uh, yesterday morning, went through the grass through our yard and got some uh, frost on it, the wind, on the tires, I guess, and then I was going over to Vonderleith and I took, you know, anyway. You know when you go for a fall, it kind of goes in slow motion? This one did not. Just like that, and uh, I was down. So anyway, I got a little bump on my head, and it broke my glasses. So I bought, went out and bought these five-dollar uh, reading glasses. But when I look at you, you are really anyway. So I'll use them off and on this morning, and that's that. Well, today we're going to have communion and offering after the sermon this morning. We're going to have communion, and then the offering tray is going to be uh, right here with you. We're going to have you come forward for it. And that's the time you can bring your offering, of course, and also your communication card. And also, if you're going to fill out a statement of intention, we invite you to do that. See, uh, and on the card, we're, we just put down there, you, we want you to consider what you're going to do percentage-wise as giving, percentage-wise is what you're going to do for saving, and percentage for spending. You know, God's in charge of all our money, and how we spend it is as much a big as an issue as it is how we give. And one suggestion is the 10-10-80 plan, where you give 10% to God, save 10%, and live on 80%. Uh, for many of you, those percentages will differ. Some of you might want to put down dollar amounts, uh, and it's strictly voluntary. Okay, no one's going to follow up and check on anyone. It's between you and God. We just want this to be an, a very personal time between you and God as you come and share in communion with him and also come and bring your uh, statement of intention your offering. I'll talk more at the end about it. Three weeks ago, I talked about Ten Commandments of Money, some of the basics about saving and attitudes and what we need to watch for. Two weeks ago, we talked about tithing. Ten percent off the top goes to God, and God challenges us to test Him, and He will bless us. And then last week, we talked about how it takes faith to tithe, and we talked about the faith of giving. So today, I want to talk about our motives. Why do I give? I give to the IRS every year. Many of you do too, I'm sure. And I'm motivated to give to the IRS for at least three reasons. First of all, God tells me to do it. I'm commanded to pay my taxes. A second motive is it's the right thing to do. It's the law. And a third reason, quite honestly, is fear. I don't want the IRS coming after me. That does not sound like fun. And in some ways, I tithe for the same reasons. God tells me to do it. It's commanded. It's the right thing to do. It's the, our God is a giving God, and he wants us to be giving people. And third, frankly, I give out of fear. I'm afraid of God. I, I'd be scared to death to rob God of his 10%, like, like Malachi taught us. I shouldn't say I'm afraid of God, but I fear God if I'm disobedient to him. So I have to ask myself, do you fear the IRS more than you fear God? Some do. Fear the IRS a lot more than they fear God. Now, there's other motives for giving, better motives than fear and commands and all that. All those, those are two legitimate ones. So today I'm going to look at two churches found in 2 Corinthians 8, and both churches are motivated to be giving churches. And today, what I'm wanting you to do, obviously, is to look at your motives. Why do I do this? Do you do it because of obligation and duty? you do it out of guilt? Is it just a habit? Are you hoping to get something uh, back? Uh, are you doing it because you're thankful or because there's a need? You know, there's just all kinds of motives. What is your motive? A horse jockey was asked how he was able to win the Kentucky Derby. And he said, well, down the back stretch, I whispered in my horse's ear this little poem. Roses are red, violets are blue. Horses that lose end up in the glue. <laughs> and that motivated him. So, well, the ancient Jews said there were different degrees of motive, different levels of motive. Some were higher than others. 
And at the lowest level of giving was those who give grudgingly, reluctantly, and with regret, and usually don't give much at all. The next level are those who give less than they should, but they do it graciously. And the next level are those who give what they should, but only after being asked. And the next level are those who give without being asked, and so forth, several levels. And really, most of us are multi-motivated. A variety of ways we're moved to do something. I think you'll see that today. We're going to look at these two churches that exemplify different levels of motives for giving. Macedonians and Corinthians. Both are rich, but in different ways. First of all, the Macedonians were economically poor, but spiritually rich. They were actually in poverty, but Paul considers them a rich church in many ways. The Corinthians were rich in many ways, but spiritually, at least compared to the Macedonians, poor. They were economically better off than the Macedonians, plus they were rich in spiritual gifts and a lot of abilities, but it becomes pretty clear that Paul considers them the the poorer of the two churches. And Paul sees the attitude that the Macedonians has, and he wants the Corinthians to experience the same kind of motive, same kind of attitude. And so I'm going to compare these two churches, and especially their motives, and ask, what's the difference? And then ask you, are you more of a Macedonian or more of a Corinthian? So as I read this, I want you to look for the number one key for the Macedonians' attitude. What is the core of their generosity? 2 Corinthians 8, 1 through 7. Now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. And they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves, first of all, to the Lord, and then by the will of God, also to us. So we urged Titus, just as he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. But since you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in the love we have kindled in you, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 is really an appeal letter. Paul has been collecting funds for the Jerusalem Christians who are going through a famine, and this is the appeal to raise money from the Corinthians. However, this isn't like the appeal letters you get in the mail, pretty much. You'll see that. It doesn't focus on the need. It doesn't show pictures of starving children. And Paul certainly could have talked about the terrible conditions in Jerusalem. This letter doesn't promise a miracle if they give. It doesn't promise a free book if they give or a name on a plaque. It doesn't even use the word money. In fact, there's more theology than anything in this text. And I am more and more convinced if our theology is right, that's our understanding of God in his world, if that's right, we'll be thinking right about just about everything. It starts with your theology. You can handle all that life throws at you if you have the right perspective and if your view of God is correct. So God uses, the, or Paul uses theology to motivate these Corinthians to be healthy givers. What is the number one key to the Macedonians' generosity? I would answer that, grace. Verse 1, the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. Verse 6, this act of grace. Verse 7, excel in this grace of giving. Now where's grace come from? It comes from God, Right? So the generosity of the Macedonians was not of human origin. The grace of God did account for their generosity and overflowing joy in in spite of their extreme poverty. God did something in them. God put it in their heart. And because of the grace they received, they abounded in this grace of giving. God had touched them somehow. So the basis for giving is not what we can do for God. 
as if God needs anything from us. But what God has already done for us through Jesus and what he's doing in us through grace. The Macedonians gave because they were already experiencing overflowing joy from God. So giving is not a way of showing God how much we can do for him, but a way of illustrating how much God has done for us. Grace, as most of you know, of course, is undeserved favor, something we receive that we have not earned. The Macedonians saw giving as an undeserved favor that God had granted to them. They call it a privilege to give. The word privilege there, by the way, is the word grace. Their giving was not motivated by duty, was not an obligation. They saw their giving as a gift from God. God allows us to give it. It's one of his blessings to us. So giving for them was not a chore at all. This grace that God has given to the Macedonian churches is the same grace that Paul wants for the Corinthians and for you and for me and for this whole church. So my question is, how can we know if I'm a grace-based giver? How can I know if I'm more of a Macedonian Uh, How do you know that your primary motive is the grace of God living in and flowing through you? These are the highest motives. So how do I know if I'm a grace-based? Here's some signs. Number one is overflowing joy. The grace of God filled the Macedonians with joy, and it was not because God had prospered them financially. He had not. It says in the midst of a very severe trial, they were struggling, probably being persecuted, but they still had this overflowing joy. They knew They were children of the king. They knew they had a security that no amount of money could ever bring. They knew they had eternal treasure. They had something beyond this world. There's a fundamental association between joy and grace, and I'm going to throw in there gratitude. Those all three go together. If you are joyful, it's probably because you are grateful for the grace you have received. And if there's no desire to be generous, it's probably because you don't get it. Do not understand who has blessed you and how much you've been blessed. The Macedonians were thankful in spite of their poverty, and because of that, they were joyful. Now, what happens when you're filled with joy? When you're really giddy, really happy, really joyful, what what happens? I remember in college, uh, some of us guys would go to a restaurant or somewhere like that, and we would have so much fun. We would just act like idiots. And I remember thinking several times when we go out and just act like idiots, why do people have to get drunk to act stupid? Really? We were just having so fun, and we could do it without drinking. Uh, by the way, I wasn't drinking when I was riding the bicycle either. Anyway, just out of fear, fun, sheer fun and joy, we did stupid things. Nothing destructive, nothing evil or lawless, you know, just weird, you know. You know how teens can be. And if you have overflowing joy, you tend to do crazy things. People who are in love, you know, really, now I'm in love, but you know, you know what I mean, you know, that first romantic, you know. They're so, you know, crazy, that kind of stuff. People with joy, they tend to take more risks. You become more childlike. There's a certain recklessness even associated with joy. In joy, the early church went to all the world and witnessed with reckless abandon. In joy, they worshiped with their whole being. In joy, they gave. People sold houses and property. Almost irrational. At the end of the service, you're going to see Ebenezer Scrooge. And he was changed, as we all know, from a man, a selfish man, to a man of unmitigated joy. And I think back to the churches I served, some of the most exciting and joyful times were when people were stretched financially and when they sacrificed and stepped out on faith and trusted God, and they just, this is fun. Another sign of grace giving. Giving in spite of trials. Now, there's two things that Macedonians had a lot of. They had a lot of joy, overflowing joy, it says, And they had a lot of poverty. Verse 2 says extreme poverty. The formula here is kind of a weird formula. It's extreme poverty plus overwhelming joy equals rich generosity. 
Most of us don't do math like that. But joyful giving, giving, even in the midst of one's own difficulty, is a sign that God's grace is at work. Jesus said, blessed are the poor. Frankly, I'm not sure I believe that. I don't want to be poor. Do you want to be poor? None of us want to be poor. In fact, I kind of like pay raises. I remember once, my first wife would handle the money, and she gave me the, my allowance every week, and I was thrilled because I got a raise one time. And so instead of $10 every two weeks, I got $15 every two weeks. And I said, I'm rich! And she said, well, you're rich, but it's not because you got a raise. And she was right. I am rich, but it's not because of any raises. Macedonia was a rich church, rich in joy, rich in grace, but they were not rich financially. In my lifetime, I have found that it is easier to risk more when I have less. It is easier to be a faithful steward when I don't have quite as much. I've been to the Philippines a couple times, and there's a lot of poor people over there, but I didn't notice that they had less joy than us Americans. There was one difference I noticed. We would go to the mall, and they couldn't. They didn't. Why would you go to the mall if you don't have any money? So they played basketball while we were at the mall. Who had more fun? When they worshiped, it just seemed like they had more joy. And I know some of this is cultural stuff, you know. And I don't want to glorify poverty. The Bible doesn't. Poverty doesn't guarantee spirituality. You can be a greedy, selfish, poor person, okay? But it is clear in the Bible that there are some advantages to not having quite so much. Wealth is a blessing and we're thankful for it, but please be aware of how much more difficult it is to be a rich church than a poor church. And we are a rich church. I had a wealthy woman once say to me, it's a curse to love God and be rich. She gets it. God's grace sometimes more easily flows when we don't have quite so much. Third sign of God's grace is wanting to give. Paul said they urgently pleaded. They begged for the opportunity to sacrifice their meager positions. He said entirely on their own, without being manipulated or coerced or even asked, urgently pleading with us for this privilege. Again, that word privilege is the word grace for this favor of giving. Do you know people who just love to give? It's almost like it's in their DNA. God's grace can bring about that kind of an attitude. That's why it's such a joy for these Macedonians. It wasn't a duty. They truly understood it is better to give than to receive. Now, receiving's nice. It's, receiving is good. Giving is better. I will have people come to me often at Christmas and say, you know, I've been blessed, and I want to help someone. Do you know of a need? And I just love to hear that. I want to help some. I want to give. They weren't asked. They weren't coerced. There was no Christmas campaign, just entirely on their own. One sure sign of God's grace in people's lives is they want to give. And it's not just money. They want to give their time. They want to give their talents and whatever they can do for the Lord because they understand how much they have been given. It's really all about grace. There was one guy in a church that I was at, and he had a good job, but he didn't flaunt it. And we were in a stewardship campaign. And we had a commitment come into that campaign, one commitment of $100,000. And it was anonymous. And this was above and beyond regular giving. I didn't believe it. I, I, I remember talking to the elders at an elders meeting. I said, that's not right. Someone was just kidding us. Someone was you know, make, playing a sick joke. Well, this man was one of our elders. And he was in the room when I said that. He didn't say anything at that time. But he told me several years later the truth. He had committed that amount. He gave that amount. And I should have known because he was just the kind just loved to give. He had experienced the grace of Jesus and was so grateful. 
and so generous. Here's another sign, verse 5. They did not do as we expected, they did more. They gave beyond their ability, giving beyond our ability. They exceeded our expectations. How can you give beyond your ability? If you're not able, you can't do it, right? I read an article about a church in Brazil called Inheriting the Cracked Earth. It made me think of giving beyond your ability. It says the earth is cracked in Pereba State. The, the sun burns everything in this remote part of Brazil's northeast. Despite many small farms, there is little food. Most people eat once a day. The region is the poorest part of Brazil. But in the tiny town of, it mentions this, Itaporanga, something like that, the church, 25 members, is holding a fundraiser. They have some important needs. A tithe for most of the church members is less than an American dime. Then the article tells about one of the members, Maria. Maria has no cash income. She has no tithe to give. Her husband is unemployed. The couple has two children and rarely enough to eat. She decided to give her rooster, the only thing she owns, as her tithe. When asked about it, she said, God has given me so much more. What do you mean? All you have is a rooster and you're giving that? Most of us say, that's dumb. You need to keep your assets. You're giving beyond your ability to give. Maybe we don't get it. Maybe we don't see that God's value system is upside down when he says, blessed are the poor. We don't jive with that. Blessed are the persecuted. What do you mean? Only by God's grace, changing and transforming our hearts and minds and helping us understand fully what God has done for us. Now, the rest of this text, Paul focuses on the Corinthians, and I want to look for, look for the ways that Paul motivates them as we read this. He says, I'm not commanding you, but I want to test the, test the sincerity of your heart by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. You see some motives in it? I wanted to test you. I want to compare you. And here is my judgment about what is best for you. There's another one. This is best for you. Last year, you were the first not only to give, but also to have the desire to do so. Now finish the work so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it according to your means. For if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. Our desire is not that others might be relieved while you're hard-pressed, but that there might be equality. At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need, so that in turn, their plenty will supply what you need. The goal is equality, as it is written. The one who gathered much did not have too much, and the one who gathered little did not have too little. So Paul uses several little, not little, but motives that are in this text, and I would call these, for the most part, lower motives. They weren't really the same level as the Macedonian. He wants to test the sincerity of their love. You know, is what you love, is what you claim real. He, he compares them uh, to the Macedonians and their earnestness. He uses Jesus' example. You know, Jesus was rich and became poor, so we might be rich. He prods them in verse 11. Now finish the work. You know, you'd started well, now get it done. He appeals to their sense of fairness in verse 13, equality. Your plenty will supply the needs of those who don't have as much. He's basically saying, is it right for you to get along so well while your brothers and sisters are suffering? Is that right? You feel good about that? So the Macedonians were motivated by grace, joy. They're doing out of poverty. They gave beyond what they could afford. The Corinthians, he talks about a task, comparisons, fairness, and prodding. There's a little difference there. Who's the mature congregation? Let me give some implications. We are all a mixed bag of motives. Although grace and joy and gratitude are 
the motives we should be striving for, most of us probably are not, motiva- not mature enough to be motivated by these only. Am I a Macedonian or a Corinthian? My answer would be yes. Uh, I'm a mixture. In one sense, I do want to give, and I do give as a worship and grace, and I do give out of joy. In another sense, I give because it's expected. It's a duty, and frankly, out of fear. And those lower motives are not illegitimate. They are biblical. But uh, they're not the highest reasons, even though they're biblical. Second, don't judge others. We're all at different levels of maturity in our walk with Christ, and some will give with higher motives, some with lower motives. The goal is just be growing. Grow to that next level. And Satan will whisper in your ear, look at those others. They're not doing what they could or what they should. And you need to tell Satan to bug off. People are different levels. You don't always know other people's situations. And our primary goal is changed hearts. It's not fundraising, it's faith raising. And it's possible to give a huge amount and still not really be changed, give with the wrong motives. Paul talked about this, 1 Corinthians 13. If I give away all I have, have not love, the wrong motive. It's nothing. So you may be generous, you know, as far as writing a check, but it doesn't really do any good. So don't judge others. Rather, number three, do examine yourself. One of the steps to healing in AA, I think it's step four, says we made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. And that's what I want us to do today. Why am I doing this? What are my motives? You may even want to write them down sometime. Just really think about when you write it down, it kind of helps uh, specify you know, your thinking. But write down a few things. Why do I give? And the more you focus on grace and Jesus and gratitude, the more you're going to get to that higher plane. Make a searching and fearless moral inventory of yourself. Be honest. Instead of looking at the motives of everyone else and, one, and judging them, what's going on in you? I had someone tell me just a couple weeks ago that they were growing in their giving but they were not where they needed to be in their attitude, in their motives. And I appreciate that honesty. Be honest with yourself. Are you a Macedonian or more of a Corinthian? You're probably a little bit of both. My prayers will all grow in this next level, and our motives will eventually be filled with joy and gratitude and grace, and we're going to want to without having to be coerced. And what Paul wants for the Corinthians and what Paul wants for us is exactly what happened to Ebenezer Scrooge in that classic book, classic, classic story. Scrooge was given the opportunity to make a searching and fearless moral inventory of himself and became a radically changed man. so much to do. I any time. I was light. As happy as an angel. <laughs> I'm as merry as a schoolboy. <laughs> I'm as giddy as a drunken man. <laughs> merry Christmas to everybody. And a happy new year to the world. <laughs> If this be a prank, boy, I'll box your ears. He was in that window. I swear it. Oh, there you are. This boy here says you wish to purchase this turkey here. It's quite right. Here's your half crown for a service well rendered. Thank you, sir. Splendid boy. Now, there is an address and the price of the turkey. You'll take this fine bird to Bob Cratchit in Camden. Now, the directions are all written down. 
Leave immediately, this very moment. Yes, sir. You'll say only that it comes from a friend. And it must be there in time for Christmas dinner. It will be, sir. Good fellow. Here's a little something for you, Doc. Oh, thank you, sir. Ah, not to offer you. Thank you, sir. Merry Christmas. Wonderful day. Like angel, yes, exactly. You sing excellently well, yes. Thank you. Ah, tis I who thank you for that glorious music on this glorious Christmas day. <laughs> good morning, gentlemen. Oh, gentlemen, oh, good morning. Merry Christmas to you, Mr. Scrooge. That is my name. I fear it is not pleasant to you. Allow me to beg your pardons, and please accept my pledge to the poor and needy for... Uh... Lord bless me. My dear Mr. Scrooge, are you quite uh, serious? If you please, and not a farthing less. There are a great many back payments uh, included in that, I assure you. What can I say to such generosity? No, don't say anything. My dear sir, will you come and see me? We will. Oh, we will indeed. I'm very much obliged. Thank you. Fifty times. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> moral, uh, searching, deep moral inventory yourself. We're going to combine communion and offering today for our service today. And the reason for that is communion is all about grace, God's grace to us, and we do that every Sunday. But offering is also about grace. God has given us this grace of giving, this privilege of sharing in the kingdom. So we're going to have you come forward uh, for communion as we're singing the song. You can pray a little prayer there, pray with your spouse or your family or just on your own. Take the emblems that sing signify his grace and also put your offering in or, and your communication card and your statement of intention to do that. that. This is your gift because of his grace. And again, it's strictly voluntary. No one's going to follow up or check on you just between you and God. But make this an act of worship and faith and gratitude and say, Lord, I'm bringing this to you because of your grace. I'm going to become a grace giver. Let's pray. How can we not thank you, Lord? And how can we not be filled with joy? Maybe it's because we forget who you are or what you've done. But Lord, I pray you'll fill us with grace. Fill us with an overwhelming joy and gratitude. We also understand that we need to open ourselves to you. And so we commit our devotion and obedience to you this day. Thank you for these emblems that remind, you, remind us of your grace. And thank you for this privilege and this grace of giving. We do this in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Would you come as we sing?